Greetings, brothers and sisters. Thanks for joining us uh, online Sunday morning worship. want to encourage you again as you're able and as, as vaccinations are coming out, wherever you stand on those things, and, and, and as the other aspects of life are slowly returning to normal, I want to remind you of the significance of the local gathered church. So as you are able, uh, may it not be just because it's convenient to stay home. I want to encourage you to come gather with the church body. Church means gathering. And that's a gathering with your brothers and sisters. So as you are able, and feel freedom and safety to do so, we've got the measures in place. We've got three different venues in the building. I want to encourage you to come back and join us. We've got things upcoming, not far from now, that will be uh, beyond just the normal service that we're implementing. And so please don't miss out on those things. Look forward to having you. Uh, We are in uh, arguably the most difficult passage, not just to interpret, but even to... Uh, understand. And it's a difficult one. And it's even a difficult one just because it goes against the grain of the, of, of the cultural ethos of our day. Yet we said last week we want to sit under, not over, we want to sit under God's Word. And I hope that's what we will do today. I say that not just uh, from my perspective, but I think that the Lord is honored when we listen and heed His Word and respond rightly to it. Uh, I, in this difficult text, I decided to break it up over three Weeks. Last week I gave you the purpose, God's purpose for man and woman. I, I thought we needed a, a 30,000 foot flyover so we could kind of see the landscape, kind of a biblical theology of the Word of God regarding gender, male and female, and the beauty and harmony and mutuality it reflects. This week we'll go through the principles of this text, where I will actually work through this text in detail and make sure that we're grasping what it's trying to say. And, and, and because there's so much complexity, I'm reserving next Sunday to go through the practices. So what does it all look like? Like, flesh out what this looks like. We want to spend time on the principles this week, and we'll look at the applicational practices, what it is and isn't saying, next week. Let me start with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump in. Father, teach us this morning from your word, and maybe especially this text, Lord, but it would seem like every week we need to be reminded of the authoritative nature of your word when it speaks to us in loving ways and when it speaks to us in rebuking exhortative ways. Lord, help us to have soft hearts that hear, that rightly respond to your word. We ask for your grace in this. I ask for the, you give grace to our church family as we, as a collective unit, try to sit under your word. So guide us today as we hear and respond to your holy word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just start with a kind of interpretive uh, approach and understanding of what we're dealing with. This, the, the foreignness of this passage in our contemporary age can be explained in three ways. Meaning, if you kind of sat awkwardly listening to the reading of this text, you're not alone. It just sounds strange to how we think or are spoken to about Uh, gender in our day and age. And there's three different ways in the modern day that this text is explained. Uh, Cultural, situational, and foundational. Let me just explain those three real quick. Some would say that this text is cultural. Paul is commanding women to display Christian virtues in a way that fits that particular cultural context. Like he's saying that fits the context. So display Christian virtues in that context. And since our contemporary culture is different, the argument would be 
such Christian virtues can be applied differently, meaning they would kind of gloss over the specific commands of the text and say, really what's behind them is that we would reflect a general level of submission and appropriate Christian response with the people with whom we live and work. And since the appropriate expected responses are different now than they were 2,000 years ago, we can disregard some of the specific commands in this text. A problem with that, and a reason why I would discourage us from trusting that approach, is that the starkness of this passage forces the interpreter to find a a deeper meaning or theme. It's like you can't even find the meaning in the words themselves. You kind of have to go behind them to find some kind of applicational significance for us today. Otherwise, it just feels like you could just throw this text out. But that's not how God's Word works. Another approach in our contemporary age is that this text is simply situational. Paul is writing, it is argued, to a church in Ephesus, a city they claim with a big and famous pagan temple, the Temple of Artemis, run entirely by power-grabbing women. And that Paul, therefore, is, is saying, listen, listen, we don't want to reflect those kind of values as a Christian. Some have also created a different situational background, simply saying that, that in this particular church of Pastor Timothy, there's some like real dominant and strong women, and this particular text is trying to rebuke them and say, hey, 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 don't, don't try to grab control. The problem with that is, is twofold. Uh, one is this. Any kind of reconstruction, kind of getting behind the text and figuring out what the details were so that we can bring that forward when we're reading the text, is an educated guess at best. We really don't know much about the context in Ephesus. In fact, it doesn't sound that different, to be honest, than the context in Corinth or Galatia. We really don't have specific information. If we did, we could maybe apply that, but we have nothing close to the specificity that some are trying to claim. Again, I say that wanting to say this to you as somebody who's trained in the academic field of New Testament. It would be easy for somebody who has no exposure to those academic backgrounds and discussions to say, well, that sounds convincing. That, that seems like a logical explanation. But I would like to tell you that, that there, is, there is no clear access to some background for Ephesus or the Temple of Artemis that we can rely on. But even just at the surface level, another concern of the situational approach is that this sure is an odd way of speaking to say that there's no distinction. If Paul is trying to say, oh, there's no distinction between men and women, this is a very odd way of saying it. He never once mentions a temple. He never once mentions confident, overconfident, prideful women. And he never once seems to really speak into some kind of unification of equality that that, that somehow denies a distinction in practices or roles. I think the right approach is not that this text is cultural, that it can be explained away by a background of some sort, not that it's situational, but that it's foundational. That Paul is describing the relational realities between men and women that are God-designed. And more than that, that are rooted in the order and structure of creation. This completely fits verses 13 and 14 that we'll look at in a minute. And it fits other passages in Scripture. Again, that doesn't, that doesn't take away the 
confusion, or at least the difficulty. You and I hear this text, and like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second. This is telling somebody that they can't do something? This is limiting a particular role to one particular gender? Yeah, that, that raises its own problems and questions, but at least we know what the text is saying, how that works out, or even why we might need to get to. But I don't think we can try to create a different what. Remember, we need to make sure we are interpreting properly. And a cultural or situational interpretation of this text, in my opinion, fails to do so. We also need to make sure what I prayed or just a few minutes ago that we're sitting under the Bible, not over it. That we're uncomfortable with what God is telling us and we want to tell him what it really should be. Brothers and sisters, that's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And it's no surprise the creatures of Adam, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve would do the same thing to this day. Another thing just to remember, just as we are about to jump into the principles of this text, is this. We do not come to a text in a neutral way. Like We, we are not coming in a vacuum where we are like, I don't understand the different relations between men and women. I have no agenda or priority or kind of, kind of bent in a certain way. Like We have been culturally trained in ways that are hard for us to see. I, I never got a clear glimpse of that than when, when I was living in Scotland. Laura and I were in Scotland. We would have people, family and friends from the U.S. come over and stay with us for a week or so. And I was always shocked to kind of see where they would understand the cultural difference and not understand it and kind of assume that what, uh, what American culture did was, was the norm or neutral and it was strange in the UK. Two examples were why, they, they, I would hear this kind of comment, why in the world are they driving on the wrong side of the road? Like the Brits are driving on the wrong side of the road. How strange is that? And if you just were to think about that for a second, I remember saying, what's the right side? Like what's the correct side of the road? Right side? Left side? It, it still works. I remember one person got frustrated uh, at a store because you would often hear, instead of somebody say, that's two pounds, right, like dollars, pounds, instead of two pounds, they would say two quid. You're like, what's quid? Well, quid is just like saying two pounds. And I remember, I remember one, one, one friend said, well, why do they even speak like that? Just say pounds. And I'm like, what if I said to you, you owe me five bucks? Would you understand what I'm telling you? Yeah, that's $5. What's the difference? So, so bucks was okay. It wasn't dollars, but that's okay. But quid, because it's not pounds, is not okay. Like we don't realize how our own culture establishes kind of uh, principles, practice, assumptions, norms that all cultures, not just about how we talk about money or how we drive on roads, but when we think about how God created the world, all cultures need to be evaluated based upon the Word of God. So let me jump into my, my, last, my last four points are going to be principles that spring from these verses. L let, let me hit them one at a time. First, in regard to verse 11, I'd say this. God's design for male and female reflects the ministry of Jesus to all people. Verse 11 is difficult to hear in our day uh, as anything other than a sexist put-down. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Man, by, by, by the, the time you've already got to the fourth or fifth word, you, that, that just is fingers on a chalkboard in our day. But I would like to suggest that it is more than, it is different than a sexist put down. Rather, 
it is teaching an important principle regarding the gathered church. If we go back to the context that even Greg was hitting on just a couple weeks ago when he was talking about the, 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 the importance of prayer and proper attire and attitude befitting what it means to worship God and make God the point and not ourselves the point in verses 8 to 10, it makes sense that when you get to verse 11, you're seeing that same kind of concern for order, structure, and appropriateness. A principle in the gathered church is that there should be a focus on prayer, a proper attitude and attire, and then the importance of sitting under the Word of God. What can be missed in verse 11 is that Paul begins with the importance of women learning. Please hear that. Stop at the word learn and look at verse 11. Let a woman learn. That would have been a remarkably egalitarian statement in those days. Women had no right to education. Only about 3 to 7% of people in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, could actually even read. Do you think if a father and a mother had sons and daughters, that it would be the daughters who would be invested in? Would the, could the daughters have any have rights to property, education? And even in our own country, it's only been a century since our sisters in Christ could even vote. There has been millennia of women being undervalued for their minds and their brains and image bearers of God. Even 2,000 years ago, God's word was describing the significance of the woman. Let a woman learn. This would have been absolutely strange. A pagan Roman or a pagan Ephesian coming to church for the first time, hearing Timothy read out Paul's letter, would have been offended by those words. My wife's not going to learn. My daughters aren't going to learn. Let a woman learn. Because of equality at creation, Christianity revolutionized the value of every person. There's that, there's that mutuality I'm talking about in a previous week. And Christianity revolutionized the value of every person, especially the weak. Jesus spoke with, touched, and ministered to all people, outsiders, the sick, the young, children. If you can get past the starkness, you will begin to see the significance of the structure. This, this invitation isn't a free-for-all. This is supposed to be done in an orderly way. Let a woman learn is speaking not to women directly, but to the community as a whole. The church should be a place where all humanity come to learn together and hear the word of God. But learning is done with order and structure, befitting the seriousness of the subject matter. It is not saying, as it might be heard on our ears today, verse 11 is not saying, sit down, shut up, don't speak unless you're spoken to. It's saying, come, learn, but do so with reverence, devotion, and respect. Let me go to verse 12. This is the one that takes a bat to the cultural assumptions in which we live and exist it is, it is one of the most offensive, if not the most offensive verses in the Bible to our culture. So beware of that as you enter in, brothers and sisters in Christ. 
My summary of verse 11 was that God's design for male and female reflects the ministry of Jesus to all people. All are to learn. Yes, with order and structure, but all are to learn. My summary of verse 12 would be this. God's design for male and female reflects the authority of Jesus over all people. Verse 12 explains the key component of the church's order and structure. But before I explain any more, I want to say this. This is the only difference or distinction between men and women given in this, in this passage. Every other thing that you see this text talk about, and even to be honest with you, the rest of Scripture, every other topic Scripture addresses regarding life, church, ministry, requires mutuality, harmony, and interdependence between male and female. Any other prescriptions that limit women or deny them their rights quite simply go beyond Scripture. But there is one key distinction that verse 12 gives. And so what is it? It is this, that the teaching of the Word of God and spiritual oversight belongs to men alone. Boy, that, that, there it is. That, does, that doesn't sit well in our cultural grid. So listen to what the text is saying. Let me try to explain it. First, in regard to teaching, there is a divinely established division of labor in the church regarding God's Word. This is God's structure. Teaching the Word of God in corporate worship is what is in view. This is talking about corporate worship. This isn't talking about an academic institution. This isn't talking about a political office. This isn't talking about sitting in the home and discussing the Bible together with family and friends. And This is talking about a small group. This is talking about corporate worship. And clearly, the language of teaching could just be summarized as preaching, though, to be honest, churches differ over that. Our church has taken this verse to mean that the one aspect that is limited based upon this verse, verse 12, is the preaching of God's Word. That the preachers you will see uh, Sunday after Sunday behind this pulpit is going to be a man based upon this verse. It doesn't mean, though, like in other churches, that the reading of Scripture wouldn't be by a woman. That happens regularly. In fact, this particular Sunday, that's exactly what's happening. Uh, we believe that that's the place. It doesn't mean that there's not numerous aspects of teaching in and around the life of the church, ministering, uh, discipling, etc., that doesn't involve that. The Acts gives example of, of this couple named Aquila and Priscilla, and specifically, and this is, this is unique in the ancient world, Priscilla's name one of the disciples of Apollos, Priscilla's name is listed first, likely suggesting she was the one leading, gifted, ministering in the most significant way. But none of that denies that this particular text, and therefore in the history of the church, this has been the practice, that the office of pastor elder, out of which the teaching of God's word is managed, is reserved for men. The second thing listed in verse 12 is spiritual oversight. Not only is there a divinely established division of labor in the church regarding God's word, but also in God's design, the office of pastor and elder is reserved for qualified men alone. Notice I say qualified men. The majority of men and all of women are not qualified for this office. So hear that. There's, between elders and elders in training, we have 12 right now. That's it. There are hundreds of men in this church, and most of them are not elders. 
doesn't mean that there aren't others who are qualified. It just simply means it's not an automatic that if you have the right chromosomes, you're an elder in the church. Not at all. As we'll see in chapter 3, in the weeks to come, in this book, the nature and the office and other qualifications for elder are listed. But please hear this. This is what grinds against our culture. In God's economy, in his order and structure of creation, one of the qualifications for the office of pastor elder is that they have to be a man. Boy, that just doesn't sit well. I can only imagine as a listener. And anybody in this culture saying, but why? I'll get to that. Let me first say what this text is not saying. This text is not saying that this is Paul's, this is simply Paul's personal opinion. It's, it's only his opinion, which might be assumed by the beginning of verse 12, where it says, I do not permit. Meaning, it's not something I would do, but feel free for you to do this. It could be something like, hey, I don't eat gluten, but feel free to eat gluten if you'd like to. I don't think that's what this text is saying. Paul regularly uses I as a normal way of reiterating core doctrine in biblical practices. It's just a form of emphasis. Another big one, and this is huge. This is, requires us to kind of look carefully at the words of the text. Another thing this text is not saying is that as long as the woman doesn't assume authority. If you look at the ESV of verse 12, it's going to be different than the NIV of verse 12. The ESV says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to, here it is, or to exercise authority over a man. That says it like, listen, this is reserved. There's a gender qualification. The NIV, at least the newer version of the NIV, says this, I do not allow a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. The King James Version says, usurp authority. Now that sense of it is a little different. That's making it say, well, listen, as long as they're not trying to be domineering, as long as they're not trying to take it over, it's not a pure gender qualification. It's more of a character qualification. But brothers and sisters, and we don't have time to go into this, or even a means to show it this morning, but God's the, the grammar of God's word in this is clear. The right translation is, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Again, we, we sit on that. That, that. That's hard. That's like the grinding of the teeth moment in our cultural day. But just let what it's being said be heard. Let me mention one more thing this text is not saying. And this is against abused versions of complementarianism. This text is not saying women cannot speak or participate in church. Absolutely not. Hardly. In fact, I, when I was made aware that a, a woman would be reading Scripture this morning uh, for our services, I was so thankful. Because it's exactly right. Scripture expects women to be in every aspect of the church and even in the service. Uh, prophesying, which raises its own question of what that means, uh, uh, praying, sharing testimonies, serving in various capacities. Every aspect of the church requires the plurality of humanity, male and female, harmonious, interdependent, codependent, every aspect except for one, the office of pastor elder. Now that's the one that just hits, that just feels unfair. It just doesn't make sense, and, and, and I, I get that. Being raised in this culture myself, I totally understand that fact. It just doesn't seem to fit. 
At some point, we just have to simply say, God, this is how you designed the world. Like, you designed it this way. Well, let me just give you a few reasons that we can be sure are not behind God's design for the church. I just want to make this clear. These are, these are clear biblical reasons found elsewhere why this is, this is, these are not the reason why. One would be the value reason. The value reason would say men are more important and of greater worth to God than women. Hogwash, not true at all. God's word eliminates that as a possible reason. How about the preference reason? God prefers and favors men more than women. Impossible. Scripture denies that in practically every single book of the Bible, if not in every page. Or how about the performance reason? Men are simply smarter, better leaders, more competent than women. Impossible. That can be proven wrong in our own church, in most of our families. That can be proven wrong. Absolutely not. We can be sure that those are not the reasons behind God's design. But can you give me, maybe you're asking, can you give me a few reasons why God may have done this? And we always want to be careful to ask the why question. When something bad happens, when, when, something, when calamity strikes, the why question is difficult. God doesn't always tell us why. He gives us a who, and we just need to respond to the sovereign who. But, but if I may kind of venture into the why, I, I've got to give three reasons why, or for three reasons that might explain what is behind God's design for the church, that, that men alone are assigned to the office of pastor elder. One would be the gospel reason. It reflects and points to Christ, the head of the church, the husband of Christ's bride, Ephesians 5. It reflects the gospel. It points us to that there is a, there is a husband, there is a lead, there is a man who leads, all of us are assigned to and under the leadership. That is, that leadership structure literally reflects and points to God's design for saving the world through Christ. That's the gospel reason. Here's a, here's a practical reason. It provides a necessary organizational structure for ministry and for relationships. You see glimpses of this reason in 1 Corinthians 11. Quite simply, there's got to be a team captain. There's got to be a chair. There's got to be a point person. There's got to be a leader. And God decided to pick a leader. And this is the way he did that. Finally, I, 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 the, the third reason that might explain is just simply the big picture reason. And, and maybe this is giving less clarity, but just at least a sense of trusting comfort. The big picture reason would be this. This is ultimately for his glory. Even if we don't know exactly why, we do know that it is for his glory. And get this, it's ultimately for our good. It may not even feel like a good, but it's ultimately for our good. Remember Romans 8:28, for in all things God works for the good. There isn't one thing God does that isn't for both his glory and for our good. Even if we wouldn't define it as a good, God would. If you want another reason, Paul gives it in verses 13 and 14. And the principle that I share with you is this. God's design for male and female is rooted in the order and structure of creation. Paul explains with great brevity the reason for this ordered design. The short saying in verse 13 is simply saying this. The creation order is still in effect. Like Jesus used the creation order to talk about the permanence of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. Like Jesus would always go back to the order of creation to say that the, it's not just the, the what, but the how and the why of creation. 
We did, we did that Creation uh, Matters series a few years ago now. And, and I pushed on us to say, don't just read the Genesis story of Genesis 1 to 2 and 3 as how the world was made, but why and, and, and what and who. Like it answers three other questions that are important for living life now. Meaning we often look at creation just or debating something a long, long time ago rather than seeing creation as a blueprint for how we're supposed to exist in life now. The order of creation reflects a mutuality with distinction between men and women. And if anything, verse 14, which could be totally misread, is saying that the order is still in effect even in a fallen world. In fact, verse 13 is talking about Genesis 2, and verse 14 is talking about Genesis 3. It's not blaming Eve. Scripture everywhere says that Adam is the representative and responsible for sin. It's not calling Eve more sinful than Adam. Nowhere. No. He is simply warning women not to be tempted to break the order. In fact, his argument might simply be this. Sisters, Satan tried to divide and conquer. If you go back and read that Genesis story, you will see that Satan tried to divide and conquer. Adam and Eve are separate. Talk to Eve separately. Get her against her husband. Get them against God. Divide and conquer. Tear apart that mutuality. Tear apart those distinctions. Don't fall for it. There's an order. Stick with it. Follow God's blueprint. And what is that blueprint? What is the order? It's this. Men and women were created by God with absolute equality, even if with distinctions. And it is those distinctions, evident in the very bodies of men and women themselves, it is those distinctions that gives a basis for the differing responsibilities in certain settings. We need to highlight something here just by way of application regarding God's order and structure. We need, we need to highlight an important aspect of our own culture. We often link worth to role. We just do. We link worth to role. I, I remember my son uh, when he was young and he just realized, my oldest, when he realized he was, he was never going to be the quarterback or the running back or the wide receiver. He was designed to be an offensive lineman. At one point, I think this was like seventh grade, we're driving home from a football practice, and he says to me, Dad, you know what? Did, did, did you ever want to be quarterback? I said, well, yeah. Which kid doesn't want to be quarterback? He goes, yeah, but because uh, yeah, sometimes I realize that, you know, I'm just a lineman. Said, yeah, you're just a lineman. You're not the quarterback. You're not going to get the press. They don't give many Super Bowl MVPs to the left guard. Uh, you, you don't have the big contracts to the right guard, the center. We barely even know his name. They kind of list them all at once, and they get a big picture of the quarterback. Not many jerseys of offensive linemen are sold for teams. Get it. Totally get it. But, man, I'll tell you what. That quarterback and everybody who knows football would know if that left guard is missing, that quarterback can do nothing. And you certainly cannot connect in the Bible worth and role. But there is an implicit assumption that a limited role necessitates a diminished personal worth. The equating of worth and role, though, is entirely unbiblical. In fact, you find the opposite. Listen to some of biblical truths. Matthew 19, the last will be first. 
How about this? Paul's analogy of the body in 1 Corinthians 12 as a unit that teaches that role and worth are unrelated. But maybe even the most stark example would be this. If role is a value depiction of worth, then what do you do with Jesus who served us? Is Jesus worth less than those he served? He served us. His role, Jesus' role was to serve us. Is he worth less than us because his role was to die so that we could live? I mean, if you say that, you deny what Scripture would explicitly say. That his name is the name above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Yet the Lord, who's above all, served us. His role had nothing to do with his worth. You could even speak about God himself. Even in the Godhead, there is a division of roles. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Yet they are equal in worth. But, but what do you do with 1 Corinthians 15, 28? After the final judgment, quote, the Son himself will be made subject to God the Father. That's his role. Subject to God the Father who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. If role and worth are equated, then one must conclude that the Son is of less worth than the Father. And yet we know that's not true. So don't believe the lie. If Jesus is not devalued when he serves the church, but remains the name above every name, then no woman or man who is not a pastor elder is less worthy than a pastor elder. Our culture may not teach us this or remind us of this truth, but the Bible does. Last thing, verse 15. Again, tough, tough phrase, tough verse. Saved through childbearing. Paul. Give us a break for a couple. Let us get some air in this passage. I'd summarize it this way. God's design for male and female exalts women and their significance in the purposes of God. After explaining the responsibility given to qualified men, Paul ends with the responsibility given to women. And, and here's what he's saying. God does not want women simply to be learners about God. He wants them to live for God. Sisters, in this verse 15, he is exhorting you, yes, God has made a distinction, but please hear how God has designed you to flourish in his economy. Just as God has a particular assignment for men, so also does he have a particular assignment for women, explained through that difficult phrase, saved through childbearing. No, it is not denying salvation by grace through faith. Scripture is clear on that. Rather, Paul is making a point using language from Scripture. If you have your notes, I put it there in the notes for you. It going back to Genesis 3. In view is Genesis 3.16, an order rooted in creation, designed for the cultivation and care of creation. God says this in Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's that pain in childbearing. Twice the phrase is used in 3.16. Using Genesis 3, in which God rebukes Adam and Eve for their rebellion, 
Paul encourages women to seek to live their lives as God created them. In fact, the word saved, we we think of it just in like our soul, becoming a Christian, but the word saved is a much broader word. It's actually connected to the created order. It's the same word in the Gospels every time Jesus did a physical miracle, meaning that Greek word sozo can mean saved. Think of soul being saved, but it also can just be translated as heal. So in connection with the beginning of the story, with brokenness, the statement is powerfully communicating God's grand intention for the daughters of God through the created order. Paul is exhorting women to seek to live their lives as God created them. And here's the point. A Christian woman should strive not to deny her createdness, but embrace it. A Christian woman should see herself as God designed her, understand the temptation for power and influence, even over the men in her life, and seek to align herself to Christ, who is not only her Savior, but her true satisfaction, i.e. her true worth. How does she align herself? Paul ends this text with those phrases, in faith, in love, in holiness, and with self-control. There may be questions you still have, and, 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 and there's going to be some time next week to address those. I wanted to give you the principles that this text presents, and and we need to spend some time fleshing out those principles in practice. But I want to end with a pastoral exhortation, first to my sisters and then to my brothers in Christ. My sisters in Christ, do you hear what God is saying to you through this passage? You were made in the image of God, designed to know and be satisfied in Christ in every way. Do not listen to the lies of the evil one, who from the beginning of time has claimed that your worth is connected to your role or that you are of less value than a man. The glorious riches of Christ and his word are all for you. A life life of deep faith, immense love, sincere holiness, and beautiful self-control are intended to abound in your words and deeds, even your soul. Don't believe the lies Seek to know and live out the truth. You are a daughter of Eve, who Genesis 3.20 describes, the mother of all the living. Embrace your Christian inheritance. Now to the men. My brothers in Christ, this passage is a warning to you. If you do not do everything in your power, as dads, as husbands, pastor elders, to give to the women in your lives, your daughters, your wives, your sisters in Christ, the full blessing of God's word, the proper spiritual oversight and care, and the nurturing provision and full participation intended for the daughters of God in his family, you sin not only against those women, but against the order of creation, and therefore against God himself. Your assignment is clear, brothers, Nourish and cherish your sisters in Christ just as Christ does the church, Ephesians 5, 29. This is the will of God. Again, I end with this closing statement to hear this truth. God made us, man and woman, for his glory and our mutual good.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, even the hard word like this that pushes against categories and assumptions and cultural norms. Father, help us not just to have rightly understood your word, but to have appropriated it in our hearts. Well, help us next week as we look at what this means in our lives, but help us to appropriate this in our hearts, to trust your design, to submit to it as men and as women, so that we honor you as king and creator and Lord of all. I pray for both the brothers and sisters, but especially the sisters in our church, that they would receive the rich invitation this text gives for them to embrace their inheritance as daughters of Eve, to receive that as daughters of the Father through Christ, to feel empowered by the truth and not the lie, to seek the full joy and the blessing that comes with faithfulness and submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And Father, help, help their brothers, their, their dads and their husbands and their spiritual leaders the pastors and elders, to give them the full bounty of God's blessing and full participation in the body of Christ and in the life lived together in every way. So give us wisdom, Father, as we as a church manage and wrestle with this text this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.